Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Joe. Hey, y'all. Before we dive into the interview today, just wanted to remind everyone to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds, and you can send an email to professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. With that, let's get into my interview with Chloe Spencer. My guest today is an award-winning writer, indie game developer, filmmaker, and Minnesota native. She enjoys writing sci-fi fantasy, horror, and romance. In her spare time, she enjoys playing video games, trying her best at Pilates, and cuddling with her cat. Here to talk about her book, Monster Sona, it's Chloe Spencer. Chloe, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm so happy you could be here. And to get us started, could you tell the listeners a little bit about Monster Sona? Yeah, Monster Sona is a sci-fi horror story with a sapphic couple. Um, the protagonist and the love interest are both bisexual. Um, and it centers on those girls when uh, in the event of a freak, after a freak explosion destroys their hometown, they have to get, uh, they have to embark on this cross-country road trip where they're pursued by armed men, mad scientists, and uh, a monstrous truth which may threaten to uh, tear the both of them apart. So yeah, that's a little bit about Monster Zone. I love it. It's It was a fantastic and wild ride. I, I thank you to Tiny Ghost Press for sending me an advanced copy. It was just such a treat and a, a great way to spend some time on their road trip with them. Uh, first, I got to start. I'm always curious, how did you decide on kind of your three key locations, Oregon, Maine, Minnesota? Yeah, um, a lot of that was honestly just I've I've I'm from Minnesota originally. I grew up in Minnesota, and so I thought that that would be kind of a fun way to pay homage to my home state. Maine is just one of these places where you know Stephen King lives. It's like a lot of where his novels take place, and it's also just generally spooky. So I thought that that would also be kind of funny. Um, and then Riley. Uh, I, I've I've spent a lot of time in Oregon and I have family out in Oregon. So it was also kind of a way to page pay homage to um Oregon um and uh kind of Portland and like that state that I spent so much time in and loved. I love that. I love any chance to kind of put in nuggets for you know the people you know who are going to be reading and and also just as like a, a little piece for yourself too. Yeah. So as you mentioned, kind of after waking up to find her new town on fire, Riley grabs her dog, hops in her truck to escape the flames. She finds Aspen, the, uh, you know, the mentioned love interest along the way. And now we're on a theme everyone loves, or at least I do, a road trip story. 
How did you decide to incorporate this into your writing? When I was a kid, I always loved road trip stories. And one of my favorite ones was Aileen Martinez's uh, Gil's All Fright Diner, which is like, it's a super like raunchy YA book. It's it's like all kinds of bad, but it was so fun when I was a kid because um, it's just about a vampire and a werewolf and they get stuck in this town and they have to like help this little diner fight off zombies. Um, and I just, I love road trip stories and stories where the protagonists have to kind of go on this like physical, not just like the emotional journey, but like the physical journey um, from place to place. And road trips, I think, have been just in my life, a really great area of, um, or opportunity, I would say, for self-discovery. Um, it's just when you're on the open road, you kind of have nothing to trust in but yourself and your car, and that's it. And it eliminates like a lot of distractions from like the real world. So it's just you um, by yourself kind of learning more about yourself and how like you approach certain situations. Or in uh, Riley Aspen's case, it's like about how they kind of, um, their relationship kind of builds over time. So when I set out to write Monster Sona, I always knew that I had wanted it to be like a road trip story because I just thought that those would be so fun. And I think that um, they're kind of, they're, they're a little bit harder to find nowadays. I wouldn't say that they're impossible, but they are definitely harder to find. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I love the kind of rebirth you've given to the road trip story because you're right, it's it is getting harder to find them. And it's nice to have this this more modern take because the only thing that's coming to mind at this point, honestly, is supernatural. That's the the first yeah. thing I think of when I think monster road trip story. Well, put those put that yeah. into Tumblr and you've got supernatural. But yeah. it's it's nice to have like something of our time, something that's like very current feeling and has those kind of lovely flashbacks or kind of callbacks to key pieces of pop culture, but you know, you know what you're, you know what you're in for at the baseline that we are going to do some self-discovery along the road, but you don't really know where you're, what you're in for when it comes to the narrative. Right. Yeah. On the pop culture side, I've got a lot of pop culture questions oh, for yes. you. Did you yes. have any key pieces that inspired you while you were writing Road Trip? Absolutely. I have talked obsessively about Jennifer's body um, because at the time when I started writing Monster Sona, that was kind of when we were in like a Jennifer's body renaissance. And I think a major YouTuber, I want to say Amanda the Jedi, she had just put out this video about why Jennifer's body was uh, like, why it was actually smarter than like a lot of the critics that panned it um, the, uh, and what like what went wrong with that production and the marketing. And so I, I watched it and I remember just being so obsessed with like this idea of, it's kind of this pseudo sapphic story, but it also is talking a lot about, um, I guess like the sexualization of women and like how women are kind of trying to get in touch with like their anger, their their emotions, their sexuality, um, like Jen the character Jennifer kind of goes through that transformation in itself. And I was so deeply fascinated by that. So, uh, and of course I love the dialogue that Diablo Cody writes. Um, she also wrote Juno and I have always been, I, I, I've always loved how she writes dialogue and kind of character dynamics and things like that. So I would say that that is the biggest inspiration for monster sona like yes the big giant monster sona the, the big giant monster so stories like godzilla pacific rim all of that are in there as well 
Um, but I, I think that Jennifer's body is the primary influence and inspiration. I mean, is there anything better to be the primary influence and inspiration than Jennifer's body? Honestly, a perfect movie. <laughs> it really is. It's genuinely just such a good movie. Um, and I just, I, I love it. And I think it's one of those movies that you can watch over and over again and discover kind of like these little, little tidbits and things like that. Um, and so I really love the idea also of just like horror that has strong female uh, protagonists where the horror is not just, um, you know, the final girl, the concept of the final girl, we all know about that. Um, but I love the idea of the villains and like some of the monsters in the story being being women as well. And so I like kind of exploring that and like those messy dynamics and like relationships um, in, in work. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and to talk a bit about the monsters, because, of course, we try to avoid spoilers here, but you are the author. You can say as much as you like. Um where did the the kind of love of kaiju and monster come from? And then how did you craft the different monsters in this book? And what would you like to say about them? If you had a, if you had to say something about them, what would you say? Yes. Um, so when I was a kid, I had a uh, cousin who was really into the uh, like monster movies and things like that. So like Predator, um, the the Predator franchise, the Alien franchise, and then Godzilla. And so whenever I would um, meet up with my cousin, he would want to watch those films. And so that's where I kind of got like that baseline, that baseline education. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm definitely not an expert in the kaiju genres by any means, but I at least had that baseline education there. And my brother, um, my brother, when, uh, when I was younger, uh, my brother liked to watch shows on sci-fi and on like the sci-fi channel. And so I got to know a bunch of different, really bad, <laughs> really bad, but like very ambitious um, horror films uh, and, and monster films. I remember, I think, watching Watchers, like, with Mark Hamill was one of the ones that stuck with me all these years. It's not a good movie by any means, but if there weren't, like, gory scenes, there's so many, many gory scenes I think I saw on the Sci-Fi Channel when I was younger that have just, like, stuck with me and, like, imprinted on me. Um, my brother's very lucky that he didn't get in trouble for that, but, um, yeah, so that's kind of where I think the love for the monsters uh, came came for um, came came from. And when I wanted to, when I knew that this was going to be like a road trip story, a monster story, um, and kind of thinking about it, I wanted uh, the monster to kind of be like an allegory or like a metaphor for um, women's anger and uh, like suppressed anger, just basically being um, just basically being uh, getting to this point where it grows so big that it's out of control and it's it's untamed and it cannot be channeled in any particularly healthy way. Because as somebody who is like survived a lot of I've 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 I have depression, I have anxiety, um, I've been, I have PTSD, I've been through some stuff in my life that has left me with like a lot of deep-seated anger. Um, and so I was really interested in exploring that through a giant monster. So that's kind of why the monster ended up being like this kaiju kind of Godzilla-esque uh, monster. But the details and like the actual like design of the monster is from, I would say like it's inspired from um, like How to Train Your Dragon, like Toothless in terms of like the colors and the eyes, uh, because I always thought Toothless had such a striking design. Um, 
and just love the usage of just just love the idea of like the green eyes that were so like Toothless's eyes and like the How to Train Your Dragon films I think are so um interesting and in that they can communicate like a lot of empathy and be very very human but then when he's mad he can go to like this very kind of alien part of himself um or monstrous part dragon part of himself so to speak so that's kind of where a lot of that came from i i love that i hadn't even thought about that because it's such a powerful way to give a voiceless character a voice when the eyes are where there can be a, a portion of them that is so expressive um but but all of that really made me think about your dedication, which is just so beautiful of, for any girl who ever felt like her trauma made her a monster, keep surviving, keep thriving, and never let them win. And what a great way to start this book, like to set the message just from the jump of like, yeah, this is this is the monster. And remember that you're not the monster. Right. It's a lot of times it's other people demonizing you and making you out to be the monster when you're not. Um, and sometimes I think, sometimes I think you can be the monster. I know that there's ways that I've responded to situations very badly, but it's kind of like when you don't have a lot of tools and when the world is very unkind and cruel and not empathetic towards you, um, you're going to respond sometimes in some very unhealthy ways. And it's important to not hold that against yourself and just try to keep focusing on being a better person. All you can really do is go up, you know? Right. Well, and that's that's so important to to think of that, like, yeah, we've we've got to get the tools as they come along and we can learn, we can grow. But you also have to give your space yourself the space to just accept that, like, yeah, we're, we're going to make mistakes. And sometimes things are just set up against me. And yeah, yeah I mean, that that therapy piece of anger is a secondary emotion. So can you take the second to to look back and say, why am I actually feeling this big reaction? But that, that takes that takes a lot of practice. Yeah, it <laughs> takes it takes so much practice to kind of to to work through that for sure. Um, yeah. So as we trip our way to Minneapolis, because of course we are now in the truck, we are on the way. We stay at roadside motels. We're trailed by mysterious men in suits in nondescript vehicles. I'm always just a curious little interviewer, what made you want to include this kind of like men in black trope? The, the idea of how are we? Yeah. Um, I think that that that's a really good question. I think that for me, I always knew that they were going to be hunted down by mercenaries. Um, and I was very interested in kind of with the whole setup with like Titan tech, you've got, um, a company that basically is okay with committing huge, human rights violations and ethical violations in order to kind of pursue this very capitalistic goal. Like it's willing to essentially traumatize this teenage girl, traumatize Aspen in exchange for profit. And I was thinking about how capitalism kind of works at like the intersection of um, like oppression <laughs> and how it makes things worse and how it can uh, make like uh, misogyny and like uh, uh, patriarchal values and standards were so I always knew that like there were going to be um, armed men that would uh, be the villains in the story essentially because Aspen in in a way you can kind of view Monster Sona and the whole road trip 
as Aspen trying to reclaim herself, reclaim her body and like figure out who she is without other people being involved and inserting themselves into that equation. And the men are the people who view that as dangerous because it means that they can't use her anymore um, for their profit. So that's kind of uh, where a lot of that, um, that's kind of where a lot of that uh, came from. And I think the the men who I think are the most respectful and the the nicest in the story and the ones who um, are the kindest to her and the ones who are not evil are the people that respect Aspen the most and like see her as a person like Elvis. Um, he sees her as a person and um, admires her and like that's kind of her first instance of having that. Well, and, and so, of course, now that you've mentioned Elvis, and we've got more than just our two characters and and dog here with us, uh, what was your process like creating characters? How do you build out that kind of primary space with, you know, our, our two leads, but then to include additional cast members, so to speak, as you're, as you're writing? I'm yeah, Riley was, when I started off um, and I was kind of giving the setup for Riley's life, like she's the child of divorced parents. She recently kind of abandoned everything that she knew to go to Maine and like resettle down there. Um, I kind of thought, I always envisioned her as this character that's very like in, in, in like uh, introspective and very much like uh sad and depressed and isn't really breaking out of her shell that much so I knew that if Riley was going to be that kind of character that um Riley would need somebody who was going to push her comfort zone a little bit um but also be kind of fun and exciting not to say that like Aspen's like a manic pixie dream girl in any way because like Aspen I think is far more complicated than that <laughs> Um, but like Aspen is this character that I think kind of, um, because Aspen is so desperate to escape the control that she's been under her whole life, she doesn't mind pushing boundaries. She doesn't mind kind of thinking for herself and really putting that forward. So that kind of challenges Riley in that sense. And I think that that's what leads to them having a very interesting character dynamic of Riley, who's very secluded, introspective, introverted doesn't know much about the world, um, very kind of, at the beginning of the book, very narrow-minded. Um, and then you have Aspen, who has had all this very horrific lived experience, but is still trying to find like the beauty and all these little things. So that's pushing Riley out, and that's what I think makes them like a good combination. Um, and then as for like the other characters kind of rounding, rounding it out, I was really... I think it was really hard for me to write the relationship with Riley's dad um, because I think originally when I wrote it, I was thinking more from the line of like not giving toxic family members second chances. Um, but when we were in the editing stages, like Josh, who is the editor of Tiny Ghost, he kind of was like, he kind of gave pushback and was like, well, why don't we kind of actually re-explore this from a different angle? Maybe we're looking at it from the perspective of like, sh she's kind of learning that her parents are not just parents, not just like authority figures, but people, and they're very complex. Um, so it, it, there's this kind of weird thing that happens, I think either when you're a teenager or when you're like in your twenties, where you realize that your parents are people that have had like very complex lives. They have lore. <laughs> right. Yeah. Your parents have lore and backstory. <laughs> yeah. They have lore and backstory. And so Riley was very sheltered from that. 
and she has to learn to come to terms with the fact that her dad who loves her and um, supports her is also a deeply flawed um, human being. And she kind of has to figure out what that means for herself on that journey. Um, so there is a lot of complicated relationships with adults because the adults are very oppressive figures in the book. Um, and so I wanted to try to have in characters that were maybe a little bit more supportive and a little bit more empathetic. And that's where Fern and Elvis come in. Um, Elvis being kind of the example, I think, of like positive masculinity. He's just a guy who is very, <laughs> he does have like some old fashioned like notions and things like that, but he's ultimately like very sweet. He's kind and considerate. Um, he has uh, like, he's got a good relationship with Fern, um, a platonic relationship with Fern. And um, he encourages Aspen to kind of do different things. Um, he's just supportive to the girls and is just very nice to them. He's like the one man that I think that they're not afraid of um, the entire story. And then Fern is, because Riley's dealing with the loss of her mother, Fern is this mother figure to Riley, to both of them really, as they're trying to kind of cope with like grief and loss. So that's where I think, I think Fern and Elvis were the most intentionally written because I knew that we would need some kind of brief moment of levity in the book. Um, because it's, otherwise it's just, it's very intense. It can be a very dark, very, very dark story. Um, but I think that that's, Fern and Elvis are kind of there to provide like a little bit of sunshine, so. I love your process. It's so fascinating to me because it is, it is not a formulaic approach. It's also not a like, oh, this, like this person came to me and there were these different characters all came to me. You had one idea of who Riley was and then how do you build that balance from someone who is who is sheltered, who is scared. And then when you bring in the, the kind of foil to Riley with Aspen, then it becomes, well, now I need to balance both of these two. It's, it's very much like a recipe. You're trying to make sure you have all the key components for a delicious meal, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And like with that in mind, how long did this take you? I mean, just with that process of like building those flavors for your characters and then, which we'll, we'll dive into setting in a little bit, but how do you, and, and kind of like form, but how how did you work on this and a bit of your process and then a bit of your timeline? Yeah, I think I started originally writing this in 2020. And so I was going to grad school at the time and I was back home um, because of the pandemic. I be, Because of the pandemic, I basically bounced back and forth between like Minneapolis and Atlanta for a couple of years as I was trying to finish up. Um, and so when I was at home, there's no film sets to be on. So I have like, aside from doing my homework and writing for like different um writing for like different classes and things like that. I needed kind of a little bit of an outlet um, that was going to be, uh, that was gonna help me, I think, kind of explore like a lot of the big feelings that I had about the world. Um, I think I've had big feelings like since 2016. Um, and so I was, uh, I was interested in kind of exploring a story about like bodily autonomy. Um, and it took a long time because I was trying to balance work and school. And so, uh, there's, there's certain parts of the book where I think I would just like lose the plot and just completely not know what to do. And so I'd set it aside for like a few months and then I'd come back to it. And then I'd write, 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 write. I usually don't write something straight through. Um, 
it's very hard for me, I think, to write something straight through unless it's like a very low word count. Um, and so Monster Sona took a couple, I, I want to say like a couple years. And then it took me like about a year of querying afterwards to really, and then at which point that took, um, at which point uh, Tiny Ghost picked it up. So yeah. Right. And then to go into the editing process kind of on the, on the publishing side is different than any of the editing you may have done previously. Yeah. Just for the, the work itself. That's wow. I'm that like what a timeline. And you are a writer in so many other spaces that just like, how is book writing different from the other writing you've done? I, it's definitely like, I don't want to say, I, I mean, it's easier. I think when you, I think when you sit down to write a book, it's nice because it's a linear story. And otherwise I've written like a lot of video games. So that means that you have to consider the interactive elements and like the branching narrative aspect of the story. Um, like right now I'm working on a, on like a, um, a side, not a survival horror RPG. That's also like a dating sim. And so I'm trying to say, okay, here's this one protagonist. And then there's like seven or eight, a ridiculous number of love interests. So I've, I've made things difficult for myself. Um, and, uh, yeah, then you kind of have to choose which path goes where, and then what, how logically the story carries on from path to path. Um, and then also you're trying to pick different objects in the room that I think can interact with the character and interact with the player and like progress the story more. So I would say that like with video games, you even, even in the visual novel space, um, I would, I would argue too. Um, but you're trying to, you, you have to kind of consider the environment and parts of the environment become like their own little individual stories that connect back to a main plot. Um, but a book, you don't deal with that. <laughs> Unless you're writing choose your own adventure, you're really yeah. not dealing with that. <laughs> yeah, you're not dealing with that. You're not going to like walk up to a sign that's by, I don't know, like an ice cream machine and a gas station and then go off on like a tangent for so many pages. It's like, we don't care about that. In a video game, that's great because it kind of gives you a sense of space and you're supposed to spend a long time with this character. So it's like, oh, I'm getting to know how this character thinks and how they tick in a book that's not very welcome. Um, so definitely, I think writing books is easier and video games are harder. <laughs> For sure. Films, I think, are films I, I want to say are almost easier to write than a book because they follow such a uh, such a strict like um, they they follow like here's point A, here's point B, like, you know, save the cat, all those kinds of steps. It's very easy, I think, to write. Um, and you're not writing like a lot of exposition as you would write in a book. So you could like finish an entire film script in a day and be like, well, there we go. But a book's not like that. Um, and a book will explore more, I think, than a film can hope to explore because again, strict, strict formula, not like a lot of ways to break out of that box there. So, yeah. I wanted to talk about kind of the last character in the book. And that to me was grief. It was how grief can creep up on you and your portrayal is just powerful. It's authentic. It shows not only your experience, but I think the experience of people that you've just been around as well, talking about it. What made you include the reality of grief in your narrative? Because often with this road trip story, even when you have the dramatic or, or air quotes here, listeners, damaged character, 
you don't really get to see the impact of grief. And I appreciate that. So I, I would love to know why. <laughs> yeah. Um, with grief, I think that for me, for, in some of the ways when I was writing Monster Sona, I was kind of writing it for like my teenage self who was just going through a really rough time. And part of that rough time came from um, when I was a teenager, I... Uh, I think I was always like a good student. I didn't stand out too much in my classes, like with my teachers. Um, but there was this one teacher um, and his name was Senor Summer. He was my first Spanish teacher. And um, he was just so kind and so lovely. And he um, just, I, I don't know, he he really wanted to like help me shine. And he was just so he was so funny. Um, he did like all these kinds of funny little things during class to um, try to help people like learn and memorize like Spanish verb conjugations and things like that. And um, he had helped me like test out of Spanish over the summer and like do an entire additional year of Spanish like in one summer. He just did it because he was just he was just that nice of a guy like everybody loved him. Um, and he was one of my favorite teachers. Um, and unfortunately, though, he, uh, when I was, God, I think I was like 16, uh, I think in, I want to say like in September or October, um, he got uh, esophageal cancer. Um, he was diagnosed with cancer. It was stage three. And uh, I remember that the last time that I saw him was at a, a student teacher conference and I had been talking to him about how excited I was to be in his class um, again for like senior year Spanish because that was like a college level class. Um, and then that's when like we all found out shortly after that was when we all found out that he had cancer and I very rarely saw him after that. Um, so there was one there was like one time where I went and I got all these different things together for um his just like a care package together to send him when he was in the hospital um and one of the things that he really loved was like penguins and so I looked all over like the Twin Cities for this like giant stuffed penguin that I could give him um and I never got to a chance to give it to him in person because he was recovering at home so I gave it to a teacher uh who then would later give it to him um but he, uh, I had always like held out hope that I would be able to like see him again. Um, cause again, super important person to me. Um, just a really great mentor figure. Uh, but in December he passed away. It was only a few months. Um, he just was gone. Um, and there was like a lot, <laughs> there was so much grief that I dealt with like after that, because this was like the first time that someone close to me had passed away and it felt particularly cruel um, how short like that, that battle with cancer uh, was. Um, just the idea that you just really never know when you see someone for your last time that it could actually, I saw him for the last time at a student teacher conference. I never saw him again after that. Um, and that was something that stuck with me for the rest of high school and even into, uh, like my young adult years, because I remember feeling, um, I just remember feeling so horrible that there were like all these things that I was going to accomplish and all these things that I was doing that I wanted to like tell him about, and I would never be able to tell him. 
Um, and so that kind of grief stuck with me and really, really emotionally like derailed me for a really long time. Um, and that I think is where a lot of the grief from Monster Sona comes from. It's me kind of like almost like um, mourning that loss still because yeah. Grief and trauma and I mean all of that it's it's like a light bulb um, may dim over time but very often it never goes out and you never know when it's going to flick back on. Yeah <laughs> yeah. But but in this case, I think some of that processing and, and also thank you for sharing that story, because I mean, that's incredibly touching and also so tough to hear. I mean, to lose someone like that is is so difficult to go through, especially so young and to see how it's still impacting you, even as you were kind of like writing it out almost later. The great thing is that you do see the turn to hope in Monster Sona, that that the trauma that you are sharing does see its way to the other side that the light bulb goes from being that like that that dim horror movie light bulb flickering in the background to like oh you know yes this is flicking on but now it gives me a chance to go but I'm here now right where did you find that hope did you find it in your own life as well as for our characters in the story yeah I think that the I mean time truly does heal a lot of wounds or at least makes it better so the older that I got and the more that I was able to kind of like accomplish on my own and and do the more that I thought that like in some ways it felt like every kind of good thing that I accomplished would be something that would make him proud so that was something that really kept me going when I was just so depressed that I like as, as a kid, I didn't know how I was going to get out of bed. Um, and as anniversaries passed and things like that, that was very hard. Um, so those were, I think some of the things that helped me to like, find a little bit of light. And eventually I started doing these things less so out of like his memory and honoring his memory and more so for myself, because no one wants you to like live your life for like another person, you know, he wouldn't have wanted that. So, um, I got to a point where I was, I was, uh, thinking of all these like precious memories, not as things that like I would mourn and like worry about. Um, I remember worrying about like forgetting the sound of his voice. I remember worrying about like forgetting like little things about him. Um, and at a certain point I was able to kind of let that go and just remember the good things and like remember the aspects of um about um about him that uh were like the most salient and like most important to me and those are the things that i think like make me smile and make me laugh um and those are the things that i think uh definitely makes it easier so for riley in the book she doesn't um she's not really there yet because i'm the loss is still very very fresh but when she's at the end, like going through and picking out pictures with her mom, she's kind of remembering these different stages of her mom's life and um, is starting to kind of see that there's like, there's going to be this future and this horizon where she's going to look back and she's going to be happy for the moments that she had with her mom. So, yeah. And, and that's such a good piece for listeners and for readers to take away that there's the like, time, time will heal, time will make things better. And that like, yeah, if you start off 
you know, living for their memory. And then eventually you make that shift to living for yourself because of them and yeah. inspired by them. I, I think that's really powerful and, and seeing what it does look like in the beginning, because you know, you've lived it. It's, it's tough at first, but to, to have that kind of spark of one day I'll get there. One day I'll be okay. Is, is really great to see. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, yeah. Now, I did want to talk about pacing for a moment here. Yes. <laughs> you, you take us through this journey in 10 days. Yeah. How did you find the right speed and sense of urgency to deliver such a, such a compelling story that you're immediately like, oh, I'm on this and I believe that I'm on this? Yeah, it was really hard. So when I, when I figured out... Um, just one of my biggest concerns with Monster Sona was that it was going to feel very, very fast. Um, especially like the romance aspect. I was worried that would feel fast, but then I'm like, they're teenagers. It's it's a high stakes environment. Everything's fine. Um, and so that was kind of one of the things that uh, I think that I was concerned about from the get-go. So when I figured out where I kind of wanted to start the journey, so that was in Maine, and then end the journey, that really helped me plan it out. Um, and then I kind of figured out the trajectory about how they would go from Maine uh, all the way to Minnesota without crossing into Canada, because Google Maps is just going to take you into Canada. And I'm like, no one has a passport. Aspen doesn't have a license for most of the, um, for most of the, for, for the entirety of the book. Um, and I figured out that that's going to be 24 hours. And I was like, hmm, 24 hours. But um, I tried to think about all the other little things that would kind of impede them on their journey. So the fact that all um, laboratories for Titan Tech on the East Coast are like blowing up, that's causing trouble in like some other areas of um, the entire coast. So that's going to slow them down a little bit because you're dealing with traffic from like everywhere on the East Coast that's kind of contributing to that length of time. Um, knowing that they were also new to um, new to uh, driving and things like that. Uh, Riley mentions that she wasn't really allowed to drive her truck very much. So she is not used to long distance driving. So I was kind of like, okay, so then that's where I can kind of like build this out so that it's not just like this 48 hour road trip. Um, and then, of course, you have Tigger. Tigger was meant to be like this emotional companion um, for, for Riley, kind of like just this buffer between her and Aspen. But Tigger also, he has to stop and eat and pee and things like that. So like, that's convenient. <laughs> it slows them down. 
Um, and then at that point, it was kind of trying to figure out where else can I slow these characters down? So they've got car troubles that that's what leads them to like their overnight stay with like Fern and Elvis. And then of course they're running into Corinne and Enzo and, um, the other, uh, the other, um, the other uh, scientists and like the other armed men. Um, and those are also things that slow them down like a little bit more. Um, so that was kind of, so, so pretty much it was starting with like the baseline and then going, okay, how can I make this longer, but not in a very like natural and holistic way. That's not going to seem like, how are they not there yet? Or, or something like that. I love the thought of like, yeah, the dog is gonna have to stop and pee and eat. And yeah. and right when it's your first road trip, you set out with the best of intentions, but you don't know what's gonna happen. Yeah. I so. think my first solo road trip, the first thing that happened was I got a ticket. So. No, that's the worst. <laughs> oh my gosh. My first road trip, I ended up, um, I ended up just not stop. I have a problem on road trips where I don't stop as often as I probably should be. And then I'll just get obsessed with like what kind of fast food I want to eat when I stop. And so there was like, <laughs> there was, I was supposed to, I remember my first time that I was driving from Minneapolis to Atlanta. I think I was supposed to call my parents at like noon and I didn't end up calling them until two hours later when I finally pulled over because I had found an Arby's to stop at. <laughs> and so that sounds right to me. I yeah. mean, that's how my brain works. I want to get there and I just want to go. And the moment I absolutely have to stop is the moment I will. Yeah. We talked about your game dev work a little bit, but yeah. would you say that writing and kind of the work that you do for video games influenced your writing at all, either from like story form or pacing or just the way that you approach the process? Yeah, I think that um, writing for video games kind of helped me to write tighter in some ways on Monster Sona because I knew that it couldn't branch off into so many different directions. I think I was less influenced by my own games because most of my games were like, uh, like Grunge is the big game that I did in, in 2019 and all the other games that I have aside from, well, I've got one that's not related to that, but they're kind of set in this universe and it's it's set in the 1990s and it's about queer teenage girls growing up um and kind of one's relationship with depression and um anxiety um so there's this so with so i guess like a little bit of that made its way into monster sona because i'm very influenced by the 90s and 90s music because that's what i grew up listening to and that's what i love um so that aesthetic, I think, is a little bit in Monster Sona, as well as like the idea of how you navigate like depression and anxiety and things like that. Um, but I think I'm more so inspired, what more so inspired uh, Monster Sona were games that I had actually played and really loved. Um, so Life is Strange, definitely the Life is Strange games are a big influence for me. Um, as well as um, other like JRPG games like Radiata Stories, which has really great uh, character dynamics, relationships, things like that. It's super funny, but it also balances that out with some really good action um, scenes and things like that. So, yeah. I love that. And then, of course, because you mentioned it, the 90s music. Yes. I 
I'm, I'm in, I, yeah, same, I'm in the same space of that's what I grew up listening to and it's what I want to listen to all the time. Did you have fun getting to pepper in these different like pop culture pieces, these music references? Some, what were some of your favorites and like, what was your experience overall? (laughs) So yeah, with like the music and the films. Um, so with the music, I was absolutely obsessed in high school with Hootie and the Blowfish's Cracked Rearview Mirror. Just Hannah Jane is a song that I swear if I, I had never gotten the chance, I did not go back to Minnesota to see, um, Hootie and the Blowfish at the Minnesota State Fair. And that is one of my biggest regrets in my life. Because if someone played Hannah Jane live, I would sob. I love Hannah. I love that song so much. Um, there are so many songs. I, like Fern's daughter is named after the song like Hannah Jane. Um, and so that's definitely one of the big things that um, definitely like one of the big albums that I loved revisiting when I was writing this. Um, I also, when it came to the films, I really loved talking about some of like the queer films that I kind of was introduced to and really loved. So like, but I'm a cheerleader. I think it's just a foundational film. It's just, everybody needs to see I'm a cheerleader. I think that they also mentioned Pariah, which is a very sad film, but it is such a good film. Um, and I think it is also essential viewing for queer cinema. Um, and then Kind of like the running gag with me is if you know me in real life, I think that Goodfellas is the best film ever and I will be very upset and disappointed if you don't think so. Um, Goodfellas to me is just like my favorite film. I grew up watching it like with my dad. Um, it would always, I think it was always on during the holiday season because like perfect Christmas mu- movie, like mobsters, murder, all of those things. Um, and I just, I I love Goodfellas. So I think Aspen Riley makes a comment about how Aspen is offended that she's never seen Goodfellas and that is directly a self-insert on that page um because I love Goodfellas <laughs> I mean if it's not Goodfellas playing at Christmas it's Godfather right like either right. way you're getting mob violence at right. the holidays <laughs> right exactly exactly and I I personally think I've seen all the Godfathers and I have seen Goodfellas and I'm sorry I think that Goodfellas is better people can fight me um, I'm fully willing to defend my uh, opinion, which I recognize may be terrible um, to some, but I think Goodfellas has stood the test of time, and I think it's just really fantastic. Hey, hot take heard here first. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be someone that gets upset about that and goes, how could you say that about The Godfather? I think The Godfather's great. It's just, you know. Right, but Goodfellas, like the- that's where you want, that's where you'd rather be. <laughs> Exactly. Like Ray Liotta's performance in that film is phenomenal. Like may he rest in peace. But yeah. Now we did talk a little bit about your intro into the horror space with your brother and your cousin. How did you get specifically into body horror? Because of course this book has both the sci-fi horror elements and body horror elements. Yeah, that's actually a really, um, a really, really good question. Um, I think that part of the body horror elements kind of worked their way in there because at the same time I was working on my MFA thesis film, like my um, script, uh, which was called, um, the film is called Serotonin. It's not available to watch online yet, but it soon will be because it it's just finished its festival run. And the, the weird thing with film festivals is that they like to have exclusive premieres and things like that. So you can't, have it publicly available. Um, But in serotonin, I was kind of exploring the idea of um, body dysmorphia. 
And um, because that's just something that I have uh, where it's like you look at yourself in the mirror and you don't like what you see and you see a very distorted version of yourself. Um, that film is about a teenage girl who tries to perform like body surgery and like modifications on herself so that she can look more like the influencers that she idolizes. And so working on Monster Sona, I was kind of trying to think about less so about the body dysmorphia aspect of what it's like to um, be a woman and grow up influenced by beauty culture, but like just the things like Aspen has parts about herself that she wants to just the way that her anger, I think, makes her a monster. And so kind of exploring like the monstrous transformation and the body horror that kind of comes along with that. But then also the body horror that comes along with being controlled. Like she's got, there's the whole scene where she has to take the tracker that's out of the back of her neck. And so that was one of the more harrowing scenes that I wrote because she's literally just like trying to mutilate herself so that she can eventually be free. Just the warning for the listeners, if you are not into body horror, just keep in mind, but I do love that the any sort of content warnings are available at the beginning of the book. You've got kind yes. of a heads up of what you're getting into. Yeah, that was really important when writing the book because I think that, um, I think Monster Sona gives it away like I would hope that my title is very funny and then it gives it away, but you never know. Um, so it was really important for me when I was writing the content warning to kind of like take into account the level of like gore that goes into the story. Um, because I think that you'd expect that from like the monster slaughtering everybody else, but you don't expect that from like Aspen and kind of the very strange ways that her body changes when she kind of enters that monstrous form. Now, your book has been out for a little bit now. At the time that we're recording, almost a month. How does it feel to have a book in the world and to have people reading it? It feels so incredible and so exciting because people have been taking away just kind of different things that um di like different ideas or understandings of like trauma and grief from and and love and how all those kind of things messily intersect and it's just been so amazing to see everyone's individual kind of takeaways on how the book um help them or like reframe their perspective on something and I think like that's what I wanted to do with the book I wanted to write a book that was kind of like here's all the awful things that life can throw at you and then here's but here's the hope that's on the other side here's how like you can kind of grow and explore from there and it's not um it's certainly not like a complete story with with grief because of course it's so raw and real and fresh um, but I think it's just something that would help someone who I, I wanted to write something that would help someone who is just kind of starting that process with like their grief or like managing anger or managing um, a mental health issue um, and something that would give them like a little bit of hope. So to see that it's accomplished that uh, for so many different people, like across all many like different ages and like different backgrounds of the readers, I see like so many like different reviews coming in. It's just so awesome to see that it's resonated with them. Um, and I couldn't have asked for like a better like launch. I couldn't have asked for like a better release because that's those are the people that I'm writing it for. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You've your audience found it, which is which is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> now, before we start to wind down, is there anything else you'd like listeners to take away from Monster Sona kind of coming right off of that? <laughs> that oh. great piece. Is there anything else? Yeah, that's a really um, 
That's a really good question. I think that this is something that I've mentioned on other podcasts, but I'll just continue to repeat it because I think what's also really important is that if you're going through a tra- traumatic event um, or your mental health, uh, dealing with a mental health issue, it's really important that you take that seriously and that you take care of yourself and provide self-care. Um, one of the things that the truck kind of represents on their journey Um, The truck kind of represents the human body as it's going through trauma, um, with Riley and Aspen being like the brain of the truck. So the more kind of hard driving that they do, the more traumatic incidents that they go through, the more that the truck breaks down and kind of becomes worse over the course of the journey. So um, when so Riley it's it's only when they get to when they're in Fern and Elvis's town that Riley and Aspen like learn to take a step back and like breathe and know that like there's just not there there's more I think that there's more that they have to like take care of within themselves before they can actually get started on their journey because I know when I was kind of um coming out of some uh traumatic incidents that all I wanted to do was like put my head down and grind and get to like the next um get to the next uh like thing or next goal in my life and things like that but when you're when you go through a traumatic incident like things like chronic pain chronic fatigue those are all gonna flashbacks if you happen to have ptsd which is super fun (laughs) um uh those are things that are gonna like derail you and it's okay to it's it it's okay to like mourn the person that you may have been before um maybe you were somebody that was able to put your head to like put your nose to the grindstone and really like uh keep going as fast as you can but if you can't do that anymore now that's also okay like there's nothing wrong with you and it's really important that you take care of yourself and I wish that I had known that earlier in life because I don't think I took care of myself as much as I should have um so yeah, that's another lesson that I hope people take away from Monster Sauna for sure. And that is absolutely something I hope you do repeat every time someone asks you that question because right, yeah. <laughs> people need to hear it. I mean, yeah, you, you change over the course of your life and it's it's okay to have feelings about that and yeah. to take the time to process it. Right. It's, it's okay. And I think that the thing is, is that when I was, when I, I tried to be so ambitious, I think for so long, and when I eventually had to slow down, I was able to kind of open myself up to all these other experiences that maybe I'd been like putting off for like a very long time. Um, and so in, in some ways it feels like you kind of mourn your old self, but don't worry about mourning your old self because there's good things about your new self that you just don't maybe understand is coming yet. Exactly. Your new self will catch up and it's it's going to be good too. Yeah. To start to wrap us up, I like to wind down with some questions from a nosy podcaster. What are you reading right now or listening to? I am reading uh, Jenna Miller's Out of Character. And then after this, I'm going to be reading Against the Stars, which is the next release from Tiny Ghost Press by Christopher Hurtland. Um, And I'm very excited about it because people say that it's a tearjerker and then it's going to, I feel like I'm in the mood for something to make me cry. So I'm really hoping it delivers. I've heard nothing about good things, so I'm so excited. But yeah, Out of Character by Jenna Miller is a really good book right now. It's about a um, girl who is a um, fat lesbian growing up in Minnesota and she is into online role-playing and so 
like as someone who's in the video game world i'm actually not that knowledgeable about like role playing that's not like in an actual rpg game so i'm learning things at the same time i'm kind of going on the emotional journey with the character and that's been fantastic so i really like it i think that that's one of that was one of my most anticipated releases for 2023 and yeah it's delivering so yeah I love that. I love when someone's also like, I'm checking off the most anticipated read from my list this early in the year. (laughs) Yeah. What video games are you playing right now? Right now, um, I need to start playing Validate, which is a visual novel. I just recently got Validate. It is a visual novel where it's about like struggling singles in your area. So it's kind of, it's, it's a more mature, it's absolutely mature. So kids, please do not play this, at least not without permission from your parents. Um, but it's just, it, um, I know the developer behind that game and they have done just, uh, they've, they've done just like an incredible job with it. The art is just so gorgeous. There's like a lot of queer and trans people on that dev team. Um, and so it's always, it's always fantastic to support like independent LGBT developers, um, especially like if they're not like working with like a big corporation, because those are the people that are not going to get like seen as often and validate has just like it has such a wonderful little fan community from what i've seen um a wonderful not little it's a big fan community from what i've seen online but yeah it's like a dating sim um and like some of the characters are just so outrageous like there's a character named malik who is just oh my god he's hilarious um and so i am excited to dive into that and then Otherwise, I have another game, which I think is called like, oh my gosh, it's some kind of like pixelated zoo game for the Switch that can't like a zoo management game or like let's build, I think it's called let's build a zoo. And it also seems super interesting. I grew up on Zoo Tycoon and I'm always looking for like things that kind of challenge my perception of like the the zoo tycoon and like life um like management and simulator games this one also i think allows you to like splice together like hundreds of different like animals so you can make i've seen crazy combinations where like you could have like half giraffe half elephant which is cursed and i'm all for it yeah how does that even work uh but i love that no i i feel like there's gonna be concerning things i learn about the zoo the world of zoos through playing this game (laughs) And maybe there's like a little dark side to it. I don't know. I'm excited. (laughs) When I say public library, what comes to mind? I always think of the library that I grew up um, with in Minnesota. Uh, I, there was the South Washington County Library in my hometown. Um, I think of that place and my friends and I used to spend so many days in our summer there. We would check out books constantly. We bike there in the hot, humid Minnesota sun and we check out books. And then there was always like a little ice cream at the time, I should say, there was a little ice cream shop next door. Um, So when I think of like public library, I think of it as like one of the few hangout spaces for like teens and like older kids where they don't have to like pay money. They can just go there and hang out. And it's fantastic. I love local libraries and I should go to my, I should go to my local library more often. I'm trying to get into the habit of doing that. Um, but yeah, support your local libraries. <laughs> that's, the, that's the challenge I put out every week, support your local libraries. 
And then where can the listeners find you online if they'd like info on upcoming projects, news, updates, all that good stuff? Yes. My main website is chloespenceronline.com and you can find me there. You can follow me on Twitter at Chloe Spencer Dev, D-E-F-D-E-V, um, as in Victor, or you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Hey, it's Chloe Spencer. That's where you can find me. Fantastic. Well, Chloe, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Monster Sona. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. We love it. We're here for it. And I really appreciate getting to talk with you today. Listeners, Monster Sona is already out, so you can go check it out now. Have a great rest of your week and as always, happy reading. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com or in Libby. Our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.